The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in Washington, and here is your top five at five. Room to run. Why one market guru who's been right in the money is telling clients to stick with stocks for the long haul despite some short-term headwinds. A deal in D.C., a bipartisan group of senators presenting their plan to the White House today, it could break a weeks-long stalemate over infrastructure. Pushing back while our parent company Comcast taking issue with one report about an upcoming M&A spree to take on Disney, Netflix, and others. The end of an era. A Hong Kong pro-democracy newspaper printing its last issue today as Beijing tightens its grip and more Western companies look to leave the once thriving city. And we've only just begun. What Calster CIO Chris Aylman says about Exxon and his desire to take on boards and CEOs who may have lost their way. It is Thursday, June 24th, and this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us on this busy Thursday morning. Let's get right to it. Here's how stocks are setting up their day, and they are setting it up strong. Dow futures are up 169 points right now. NASDAQ up 83, the S&P up 20, all ahead of another busy day for the markets and your money. On tap on this Thursday at 8.30 Eastern, The government will release initial jobless claims, durable goods data, and the third print on first quarter U.S. GDP. A lot going on right at 8.30. Later in the day at 4.30, the Fed will release results from its annual bank stress tests. And in Europe, there's an interest rate decision coming from England in about two hours' time, 7 a.m. Eastern time here. So not just a lot going on in the U.S., but in the U.K. as well. Now, all ahead of that... Stocks in Europe are also higher as well. More new highs across the board and more new records across the board. Remember, their markets have also kind of quietly been making new records as well. The German DAX in France, CAC 40, up nearly 1%. The Spanish index up more than 1%. We're going to get more on all of this ahead. But right now, let's get to some of this morning's top stories, including some news on our parent company, Comcast. Christina Partsinevelos is here with those and more. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Ryan. So we have the Biden administration late last night adding nearly half a dozen Chinese companies to its so-called economic blacklist over alleged human rights violations. Among the five companies added to the list are Ho Shine Silicon Industries, Xinjiang Daco's New Energy Company, a unit of Daco New Energy Corporation, and GCL New Energy Material, part of GCL New Energy Holdings. At least some of the newly banned companies produce a key material used in the manufacturing of solar panels, though. 
although none have vastly large contracts with any American companies. And Comcast is pushing back on a report out of the Wall Street Journal that says the company is set to go on a M&A spending spree to better take on this streaming landscape. In a statement to CNBC's own Julia Borston, Comcast, the parent company of this network, says, quote, this report is pure speculation, adding that both Comcast CFO and NBC's Jeff Shell recently said at an analyst events that they, quote, aren't in need of any new assets right now. And BuzzFeed is reportedly close to a deal to go public through a merger with a SPAC. According to a report, BuzzFeed founder CEO Jonah Peretti could announce a deal with 895th Avenue partners as early as this week. Ryan, back to you. A lot of media news out there as well, or at least refutation of potential media news. Christina, we'll see you in a few minutes again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right now, though, back to the markets. And a man who has been right on the money with his calls the last few years laying out the technical case for stocks, even when others were nervous. And he has been rewarded with more and more new record highs for the markets over that time. Joining us once again, Piper Sandler, Chief Market Technician, Craig Johnson. Craig, it's great to have you back on because there were moments where they always say it's darkest right before dawn and things were looking grim many times over the last few years. And you said stay long and strong. And you and your clients at Piper Sandler certainly paid off. Uh, so congratulations on the calls. But what have you done for us lately? What are you and your crystal technical ball seeing right now for the macro markets? Well, Brian, with the first half of the year done, certainly been an amazing year. We're up 10 percent. And, you know, when you go back through history and you look at all these positive, you know, greater than 10 percent first halves of the year, you start looking at how how much can we get in the second half of the year? And when you go back through history, what we found, Brian, is that this market usually continues to keep pressing ahead. And in fact, uh, you look back over the last, uh, since 1928, you've had 26 other periods where you've had returns as strong in the first half, and you've had positive returns 77% of the time in the second half, with sort of an average return around 6.1, median return about 9.1. You know, Brian, if this plays out this way, this is really a kind of a fat pitch right down the middle for our year-end price objective of 46.25 that we uh, had recently raised over the last couple months. What's the risk to all this, Craig, besides, you know, stocks going down, the obvious? I mean, seems like the easy money has been made coming off the pandemic lows, literally and figuratively the easy money from the Fed and the easy money in the markets. What are, if any, the major risks out there right now? Yeah, I mean, I look at it this way as we kind of navigated through the first half of the year. We had, you know, certainly a few fastballs coming in with inflation. We certainly had a few change ups in terms of market leadership in the first half of the year. And, you know, last week you got a little bit of a curveball from uh, from the Fed as uh, it looked like a few of the dots had changed on the dot plot. And I think the risk going forward from here is the market, we kind of look at this and we titled our most recent publication full count because it kind of looks like to us that valuations are you know, not necessarily cheap. You also look at the technical setup. It still looks strong at this point in time. And everybody's sort of waiting for the next pitch. And that next pitch very well could be the jobs numbers that we could be getting today. And if those jobs numbers come in hot, I think that uh, you got a fastball, a swing and a miss, and you're going to see this market probably have a little bit of a correction. But if it continues to be a transitory setup in here, it's kind of high and outside, and you kind of see this market continue to walk its way uh, toward first base and continue to work its way higher. And I think those are the kind of main risks out there. 
But then you go shift into Washington and you got to think about if we're going to get uh, a series of tax increases, we're going to get uh, perhaps changes in capital gains tax. Those are going to prove to be some, you know, headwinds for the market as you look into the second half of the year, Brian. Well, forget Goose Gossage with all those baseball analogies. And we'll have to call you Goose Johnson, I think, from here on out. I mean, <laughs> so it sounds like higher rates are indeed the risk. But ironically, 10-year bond yields have been going down not up, Craig. You know, and Brian, that's the curveball that is uh, certainly, uh, you know, we, investors have been addressing last week. Doing calls after this publication has come out over the last day or so, there's a lot of people that were looking at those numbers coming out. Yeah, they're buying into the transitory argument at this point in time, but clearly we all know that wages will not be transitory. You can't give somebody a, uh, a pay increase this week and take it back next week, uh, kind of like what you see happening with commodity prices. Yeah. So from, from our perspective, this is going to be the key part to ultimately go through and watch is where we're going to see happening with the jobs front. And again, from my perspective, I think there's a little more room for this market to continue to work into the second half. And from a sector perspective, Brian, I think you got to stay long the financials. I think you got to stay long uh, the consumer cyclicals on the reopening trade. And also, I think you got to be there with the basic materials. And if I could have another sector to be overweight, we kind of restrict ourselves to three. Energy has certainly been a, a top performing sector that a lot of people have missed and ignored. Best start to a year for the energy sector since its inception. It's up like 45% coming into this morning. Leave us with a name. You talked about financials. You've talked about it before, and you are staying long and strong. PNC. Correct. PNC continues to look like a very constructive chart. Breaking out the new highs on good relative strength. That's one to buy. And don't forget about range resources. Great long-term downtrend reversal, Brian. Throwing out an oil and gas name there as a uh, as a bonus pitch, I guess. Goose Johnson, always a pleasure to have you on, my friend. Thank you very much. Twins need a little help, but that's for a different conversation. We'll catch up again Correct. soon. Craig, thank you very much. Craig coming to us live, by the way, from the Central Time Zone. He is a champ. All right. When we come back, Beijing tightening its grip on Hong Kong as a free speech paper now prints its very last issue. We are live in Hong Kong next. Plus, another big bank says, if you want to come back to the office, you got to get the jab. And why Calster's CIO Chris Ailman says Exxon was only the beginning when it comes to his fund shareholder activism. We'll hear more of our exclusive conversation with a man who helps run $307 billion. Dow Futures up 180. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. 
All right, welcome back. Well, yesterday I moderated a panel on behalf of the Meridian Center for Diplomatic Engagement. It was entitled, In Pursuit of a Fair Global Energy Trade Balance. Lasted about an hour. Part of it, we spoke with former U.S. Energy Secretaries Ernest Moniz and Dan Briette. While the conversations were wide-ranging, we did have the opportunity to ask Secretary Briette about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline and its long-term impacts on the U.S. natural gas industry. Here's what he had to say. I was disappointed to see the administration's relaxation of the of the, the uh, sanctions on the, the companies that are involved with the Nord Stream project. I'm not quite sure I understand the logic behind it. I was more supportive of where Tony Blinken was initially. Tony's wanted to continue these sanctions. I think they're important to be continued. Uh, I can't I can't explain the logic of the conversation, but I can explain uh, the consequences of the decision, and that is countries like Germany will become more dependent upon Gazprom. And if you follow the news and if you care about climate, you will have seen in the last two or three weeks, one of the largest methane emission leaks uh, th- that we know of on record. It came from Russia, from Gazprom. We know about it. We have satellite technology that allow us to tra- track it. Uh, if you are concerned about those things, I'm not quite sure why you would increase your dependence upon Gazprom as a supplier of natural gas to your economy. The big concern, of course, about that Russian gas pipeline is it will permanently link Russian gas to Germany and continental Europe and create a lot more power for Vladimir Putin. All right, be sure to catch our full conversations with Secretaries Moniz and Briette on Meridian's YouTube page and meridian.org. I'll send out a link as well. Long ranging discussion there and appreciate the opportunity. All right, as we head to break, a quick check on some of this morning's other top headlines, including Elon Musk because he doesn't have enough companies, saying in a tweet that he plans to take his Starlink satellite business public when, quote, revenue is reasonably predictable. Sounds like a good idea. Meantime, shares of Beyond Meat are down this morning. This after an analyst at J.P. Morgan says that Dunkin' Donuts is discontinuing its Beyond Sausage Breakfast Sandwich. Dunkin' did not confirm the report, saying instead it has a strong relationship with Beyond Meat. We'll wait to see what happens there in the sausage wars. And Amazon is back up and running after an apparent outage that knocked out its Alexa and Prime video services last night. According to outage monitoring website Down Detector, more than 8,000 user reports that indicated various issues with Amazon services. No comment from Amazon, as is their usual. We are back on Worldwide Exchange right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See Center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back. There is a live look at Hong Kong. You can see the clouds coming in low. Shot looks to be from Causeway Bay. I'm correct. Looking at the World Trade Center there on the far right, you've got the Hong Kong Yacht Club somewhere down in the bottom right as well. Kind of a peaceful scene, at least from above. Well, internally, China has been tightening its grip on Hong Kong. 
And one of the last vestiges of free speech in the region is closing its doors as of midnight last night. That is the pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily. It shut down and issuing its final print edition, people lining up to buy that last issue. Apple Daily has been the target of Hong Kong and Chinese authorities. It's also been the target of police raids and staff arrests in recent days. At least five top editors and executives were taken into custody last week. The paper's founder, media tycoon Jimmy Lai, is already in prison. Let's get more now on this with Primrose Riordan of the Financial Times, who joins us from Hong Kong. Primrose, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It's a tough day. The Apple Daily was one of the the few true free speech and pro-democracy papers that were out there. Uh, People lining up, apparently, to buy the paper. What can you tell us about the final day for Apple Daily? Yeah, it's been an incredible final day. I mean, this morning from 1 a.m. local time, we had hundreds of people lining up in the sort of north of the city waiting for the, you know, for that final edition to come off the presses. So, you know, and we all were feeling quite emotional considering um, how attached they are to the paper and how um, the paper became such a symbol of the 2019 protest here, which really got under Beijing's skin. Um, Even in central this morning, in the central business district, we had, um, you know, business people, people in the financial world queuing up for copies. So it was a real, um, it was definitely um, one of the last newspapers in Hong Kong that was willing to openly criticise the government. Um, Even its proponents would say it wasn't the most perfect paper, but um, definitely one of the ones left that was um, willing to criticise both the Hong Kong and the Chinese government. So it was really quite a um, a symbol there. And um, and obviously, you know, some of your viewers now are seeing some of the shots of the staff last night putting together that final edition. Um, some of the staff also gathered on the roof um, of the um, Next uh, Digital's um, offices, which is the parent company of the... Um, of the yeah. newspaper, which has had quite a turbulent time and shining their um, their phone lights at some of their supporters who gathered outside the offices um, on um, overnight. So, is yeah, there, it was quite, uh, quite an there, there is the South China Morning Post, which, by the way, I read pretty much religiously. And by the way, Primrose, if you do find a perfect newspaper, even with respect to the FT, please let me know because I'd like to read that. But I do like to check out the South China Morning Post But even they face a tough road ahead. Is there any paper out there, you know, at least based in the region that is willing to take a, you know, a fair or critical view of the Chinese government or Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong executive authority? I mean, I guess it's just about whether or not it's um, in print, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of online media which has sort of come up through the um, through the protest movement. And we had a lot of journalists, um, you know, following around the protest movement. And I guess the question here is, like, who is the next target? Um, you know, because after these uh, raids, there was also arrests, as you mentioned, including of um, a, an opinion writer. So when we spoke to um, the journalist union here, 
you know, they really spoke of how uh, fearful some of the um, reporters here are, fearing, are feeling, considering that the authorities here haven't actually, um, have sort of been asked, you know, what are the rules and all that sort of thing, or what is the new um, paradigm that they're operating under, and they've sort of haven't quite clearly defined that. So, yes, I mean, there's a lot of um, fear among the press corps. And, and I think as well, I mean, as you, going back to your question about, um, you know, um, there's definitely is still publications and, you know, Hong Kong was sort of known as this um, regional media hub where, you know, there was sort of a, quite a, a free press and all that sort of thing. And there was quite, and it was quite an aggressive, um, you know, quite a, quite confrontational press here. I mean, if you go to a press conference, it's very hard to get a question in. Um, so it's definitely going to have a quite a big impact on the press here. And um, definitely there's a yeah. feeling of fear among the reporters. And South China Morning Post down by Alibaba, by the way, to their headlines on the SCMP was Apple Daily a defender of freedoms or a defiler of national sovereignty? Another headline says Hong Kong academics quit op ed column cite national security law. Obviously afraid to express their opinion there. Kind of a sad day in Hong Kong and for the Apple Daily. Primrose Jordan of the FT, we're glad you're still there. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. All right ahead. Calster CIO Chris Aylman, our exclusive conversation on his victory at ExxonMobil in the battle over board seats and maybe some next corporate targets. But first, let's quickly follow up on something that we talked about yesterday, which apparently is so important that it triggered a number of people. Because in a news story about how the K-pop band BTS is generating huge McDonald's McNugget sales, I suggested that ranch dressing was a great dipping sauce option for the chicken treats. Well, apparently... Many of you think I am some sort of a heathen. So we put out a Twitter poll on this important topic of the best McNugget dip. Again, all in fun. Why not? 5.30 in the morning. But apparently I, I failed you once again. I gave the Twitter poll options as barbecue, honey mustard, ranch, or other. Well, apparently the fact that it didn't list sweet and sour as its own option was just unacceptable to many, including McDonald's. Throw it back on up. McDonald's actually tweeted at us saying, really, R-L-Y, doing sweet and sour dirty here. Huh. Many of you seem to share the sentiment. Our colleague Scott Cohn replied, sweet and sour. End of discussion. Who knew sweet and sour would generate such passion? But the best news of all is that even being able to do something fun like this means that we are definitely coming out the worst of the pandemic. Can you imagine doing something like that a year ago? No way. It's all bad news. So at least now, we can have a little bit of fun in the middle of a lot of still serious news. Can we all at least agree on that? It's Ranch Dressing. We're back right after this. Falling back in love, investors getting giddy for big tech once again as stocks look to keep making more new record highs again today. Futures, they are up. Investors also in love with oil and gas. Energy posting its best first half to a year ever. Our exclusive conversation with Calster CIO Chris Aylman on what Exxon's recent board battle could signal for the sector's road ahead. And another major Wall Street firm says, if you want to come back to the office, you better get vaxxed. Well, that set off 
more controversy. It is June 24th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back, everybody. Just about 5.30 on the East Coast of the United States. Thanks for joining us. I am Brian Sullivan. We're going to get more on all those big stories in moments. But right now, let's get a quick check on the markets and your money. And it's looking like another record day on the street of dreams. Futures, they are higher. Dow futures up a buck 86. NASDAQ futures looking even stronger on a percentage basis, up 87. The NASDAQ, by the way, looking to make new record highs, and a number of big-name stocks like Microsoft and others, they have been powering this move. Maybe one reason why tech is back in vogue is because rates, well, they're not only not moving higher, they have been moving lower over the last couple of months, especially from the March peak, the 10-year yield below 1.5%. Remember, Scott Miner to Guggenheim on this program, wow, what, about a month ago, coming out and saying not only are rates going to go down, but they could fall back below 1%. Pretty much the only person we've heard say that. The trend right now has certainly been his friend. Bold call, contrarian call. But if he's right, and he has been so far, that may clear the decks, if you will, for technology, which wants low rates to maintain those valuations and some of that momentum. Rates down, tech up. Right now, that has certainly been the trade Great call by Scott. All right, let's stick also with more positives. And it has positively been a great year for oil and gas stocks. And those investors brave enough to hold their nose and buy the sector last year when everybody said, we don't want to own it or we're no longer allowed to own it. Oil at a two and a half year high and the energy sector about to post its best first half to a year ever. All that as oil keeps moving higher, and some are now renewing calls for 100 bucks a barrel. Dom Chu is here with more on energy's red hot run. It's the year of pulling stuff out of the ground, Dom. Oh, I mean, just think about where we were about a year and a half ago. I mean, it was crazy seeing negative oil prices, and then how far we've come. We are now back above $70 for U.S. benchmark crude prices, and that's driven those energy stocks higher. Just to put it in context, like what Brian said, on pace for the best first half of the year ever for the sector, just how good has it been? Well, the overall S&P is up a very respectable 13% so far on a year-to-date basis. Meanwhile, energy is up 45%. Just look at that gap between the overall market and energy. That's how big of a deal it has been for energy. So why is not... Why is it not getting so much more attention these days? Because energy overall has become a diminished sector from a market value perspective within the overall S&P 500. Just to put some numbers and context around it, statistically speaking, it is now a 2.8% weighting in the S&P 500, making it the third smallest sector. Only utilities and real estate are less of a weighting in the, in the, overall, sec- in the overall industry and the market. It has a total market value of equity, and I say that because... It's a big industry, but market value of equity, $1.1 trillion in total value, making that, by the way, roughly half the size of Apple in terms of equity market values, just to kind of give you some idea of size in the overall sector. Now, when it comes to where we've seen the outperformance as energy prices have gone higher, we have seen those companies most levered to higher oil and gas prices do the best. The ones who get it out of the ground 
the exploration and production companies. Those particular stocks up 66 percent. Oil services up 47 percent. Both of those, by the way, Brian, outperforming the overall energy sector, still up 45 percent. Energy, a big deal. Brian, I'll send things back over to you. Okay, very quickly, Dom, as a former fund manager, you think there's going to be a lot of catch-up trades? Because that's even more of a bullish case, right? Fund managers, their clients saying, why didn't you own the oil and gas stocks? They may have to come in and buy the stocks, which could lead to another run higher. Not saying it will, but it could. It's happened before. There is runway there, and there's historical precedent for it, which is why you might find some fund managers out there looking to get that extra bit of outperformance, the alpha, so to speak, in the market by looking towards some of the beaten up parts of the market overall. And energy, yes, it's been a massive move higher, but just look where it came from. A huge, huge base effect move there. So we'll see whether or not fund managers go that way. Nah, I had base effect in my pool for tomorrow on the show, but you nailed it one day early. Dom Chu, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brian. All right, you're very welcome. All right, let's stick now with energy, because once again, we have the opportunity to speak with Chris Aylman. He is the chief investment officer at Calsters. That is the world's largest educator-only pension fund. They manage some $307 billion. Now, the last time Chris and I spoke was just after engine number one, the little hedge fund, secured three board seats on ExxonMobil's board with the backing of Calsters. He told us then about the closed-door talks that Calsters and other funds had with engine number one and Exxon over the course of the months leading up to the vote. And yesterday, with that board victory in mind, we asked Chris if Exxon was an isolated event or maybe the start of a seismic shift and how he and his industry approach activism. Brian, it's both. We got three board members on that board, which is is massive. So if you go back and look at May, at the end of May, uh, I think particularly for the integrated oil and the international oil industry, it was a historic day. Not only did we get three board members on ExxonMobil, uh, Texaco, Chevron Texaco got told to to increase uh, their disclosure by their shareholders. And then even Royal Dutch Shell got to, uh, was told by the regulator to up uh, their efforts in terms of moving to a low carbon uh, output. So huge day, the beginning, I think, of a new era. And yes, it was a new day in terms of shareholder activism. It showed that, that institutional investors can work together and will work together if a board is recalcitrant and withdrawn and if management isn't willing to engage with the shareholders. And ExxonMobil was a laggard in its industry, and we wanted to engage in it and get it to turn around. And I think you're going to begin to see that with this new board. Chris, is it the, a new model for you guys, or is, it, or is this a one-off? Are you looking at other potential targets now? Brian, it's not a one-off. This is a, a new element, a new, a new step up in our shareholder activism. We've been engaging with corporations for decades mostly quiet behind the scenes discussions because that's what we would prefer. But now we've shown that if we want to step up and actually get into more of a direct engagement and change the board, we've got the power to team up with other people and do that. And I think that's a landscape change, not only for us, but for other institutional investors and for corporations. They really do need to pay much more attention to the long-term shareholders that own their company and listen to us. So I can't have anybody that we're engaging with or focusing in right now, but we've shown 
if we need to step up, we will do that and we will take on a board and a CEO. You know, this has been the number one year ever for energy. It's up 44% as a sector, the best since this sector was created uh, ever. Does, does it make the space more investable for you, Chris, given that you are able to affect some change on the corporate side, the board side, maybe the long-term planning side? Others are just fleeing the, the entire industry. This says to me you're still interested in the business. You simply want it to change. Ryan, you hit it on the head. There are so many people that want us to divest and literally just turn our back on the problem, ignore like it doesn't exist by, by not owning these companies. The reality is in life, we need hydrocarbons. Just look at the equipment and all the things that we're doing and we have right now at our desk, plastics, cosmetics, as well as transportation. We need hydrocarbons now and into the future. So we recognize it's gonna be part of life, but it needs to be a lower carbon economy. We need to go to net zero in the next 20 to 30 years. So it's a massive change. And you know, Brian, I'm a long-term investor, so I'm not just looking at the one-year return mm. on, on the oil industry. I'm looking long-term. The bottom line, Brian, I don't want Exxon to be the, the next Kodak or the next Blockbuster, or I'll go way back, the next, next Warehouse Records. I want them to be in business <laughs> in 20 and 30 years, and they need to change to be able to do that. Well, you are a massive investor. And so the Federal Reserve is one of the few things that actually might move the needle on many, if not all, of your investments. Are you starting to swap asset classes around in anticipation of a Fed rate hike or the bond market doing the bidding of the Fed before it? And if so, Chris, how? Brian, the last time we talked, I mentioned you got to watch the Fed. It's all about, and you got to watch the bond market. It's all about getting your signals from the bond market right now when you're an equity investor. The Fed basically said, we're going to talk about calling last call. So we're not calling the last call, but we're getting really close. That is really significant and something that investors have to pay attention to. Every time we have a federal uh, open market committee now, and certainly for Jackson Hole coming up in the summer, there's going to be a lot of attention on the words they use. They're data-driven. They always have been data-driven. So let's look at the numbers as people finally reopen in the fall. All this unemployment, extra benefits wears off. Personal income is probably actually going to go down. But we have inflation. They've acknowledged that it's real. So if you're an equity investor, this summer is going to be pretty choppy and you've got to watch the Fed. What do you do quickly, though? What do you do if you're an equity investor? People at home not running 300 billion. You know, the number one thing, Brian, is this is June 30. You've got to rebalance your account. You got to open up your 401k or your ultra net worth billions and look at the where your asset allocation is. Because if it's in equities, it's made a huge run and it's outweighed your asset allocation. It is time to rebalance and it's time to go back and remember what are your long-term goals. Remember that old simple discussion about asset allocation. Asset allocation still drives somewhere between 80 to 90% of your return. And so you probably had an asset allocation a year ago when we went into this pandemic. You need to go back and look at that and readjust, even if it means buying fixed income at a really tough time, but readjust to, to maintain your proper risk balance. Otherwise, you're way overweight to equities. 
and you're going to be subject to risk coming this fall. Good practical advice, as always, and our thanks to Chris Aylman of Calsters. All right, let's get more now of your morning's top stories, including some further movement on a potential infrastructure deal. Christina Partsinevelos is back with the details on that and more. Christina. Well, that bipartisan group of senators are working on that package, and they're set to head to the White House today to meet with President Biden after tentatively reaching an agreement on the plan. The lawmakers have declined to disclose any of the details of the agreement, only saying the group had not, had agreed not only on spending levels for various infrastructure projects, but also on how to pay for it all. J.P. Morgan is reportedly the last major Wall Street firm to tell employees it may require them to get vaccinated. According to reports, it's ordering workers to fill out a questionnaire on their vaccination status by the end of this month. This comes after Morgan Stanley advised workers this week that they will be barred from offices in the New York area if they aren't vaccinated. And we're learning the new details about the death of John McAfee, his lawyer in Spain, telling Reuters the antivirus software company founder apparently hanged himself in his jail cell there. McAfee's death came hours after Spain's national court approved his extradition to the United States to face criminal tax evasion charges. Coming up on Worldwide Exchange, the latest on the shipping crisis from a guest who picks a few few months ago right here on Worldwide Exchange are up more than 50%. We're back in just a moment.
Welcome back. Well, the global shipping crisis showing no signs of abating. And if you don't track shipping rates for big cargo ships for fun, don't worry. We do, or at least know people who do. And rates continue to rise. Demand is soaring. And that means money in the bank or money in the hull for many shipping companies. Joining us now for a look at the shipping landscape and who may still stand to benefit is Randy Givens, Senior Analyst and Group Head of the Energy Maritime Shipping Equity Research Group at Jefferies. Randy, welcome back. You were on this show in late March of this year, and you recommended a couple of names. Zim Integrated Shipping, I think it was at 25 or 26 bucks. Denouse around the mid-50s. Since then, Zim's up like 70% and Denouse is up 36%. So congrats, fantastic calls. You made your clients and our viewers a lot of money if they listened but do you still think there is room to run? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Brian. Um, certainly a lot of room to run, right? Ever since then, rates have only gone in one direction, and that is higher. And that is after most people, myself included, thinking there'd be a little bit of a, a rate pullback after we see all those very elevated levels. But that is not the case, right? There's a few things going on. Demand for containerized goods continues to go higher, although there is a little bit of shifting back from goods, spending on goods to services, inventory levels across all retail sectors, especially in the U.S., especially in Eastern Europe, that is all in Western Europe, is all going higher, right? So you have to do some restocking. Supply of these ships is very low. There's not going to be much new supply growth until 2023. And then third, congestion continues to get worse and worse, right? It started in L.A. and Long Beach, has spread to Oakland, Seattle, now, over in South China at the Antian port, you had another COVID outbreak a few weeks ago, and that's starting to spread congestion in China. So these ships and the containers on them are very tight. The rates are continuing to go higher. So yes, we still really like Zim. We still really like the container ship owners like Denaus Corporation, ticker DAC, and Global Ship Lease, ticker GSL. And they literally... they. I mean, I, I hate to compare them to like a Hertz or an Avis, but I mean, this is kind of a complicated world. From what I can tell, they basically just buy ships and then charter or lease them out to other people, either on a short, mid or long term basis. So how much flexibility do they have in their pricing? I mean, if I lock into a ship owner for a five year lease, am I able to profit from that? Or am I thinking, dang, I wish I would have done a shorter term lease so I can adjust it higher every couple months? Yeah, you're exactly right there, right? There, there's two ways to play it. When you're a container ship owner or a lessor, they call it, right? A Denaus or a global ship lease. You can do kind of short-term charters at extremely high rates. We saw a 65-day charter uh, just about a week ago for $130,000 a day. A year ago, it was 13000 a day, right? But most owners are opting for two, three, four-year time charters at very elevated rates as well. Denaus locked in four last week above $40,000 a day, right? So you're seeing the, the durations being extended and the rates going higher. So when you look at cash flow visibility and stability, you look at the container ship lessors, the denouses, the global ship leases. Now, the Zims, on the other hand, similar to Amerisk, which is a liner company, they're the ones renting the ship for two, three, four years from denouse and global ship lease. And then they're charging their importers the Walmarts, the Amazons, the, the Targets, even the Home Depot, which has been in the news recently, um, 
elevated rates to move those individual containers called TEU, a 20-foot equivalent unit, across the Pacific Ocean, coming into the U.S. East Coast, coming into Europe from Asia. And that's where you really get the massive rate upside is on the line. And we were, Randy, remember back in February, you know, the COVID raging, I went down to Charleston, South Carolina, to the port of Charleston. We showed people that they're sending boxes, what they call them boxes, back empty. It's more profitable to send them back empty to get in line for another load back from Hong Kong to the U.S. than to fill it up with stuff in America. It's incredible. Great levels. The liner companies do not want to wait for you to load cargo here in the U.S., put that container back on the ship, and then send it back to Asia, have to unload, yada, yada, yada. So they're much rather just take them, put any boxes you can, great. We're going back to pick up a fully laden cargo because we're getting eight, nine, ten thousand $10,000 per box coming from Asia to the U.S. So we don't want to wait to send yeah. back the We just want to keep the imports coming. Well, great calls there on Zim and DAC and, and Global Ship Lease and names that we are watching still. Randy Givens of Jeffries. Randy, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, I mean, as yeah. we head to break. All Looking right. Forward. You're very welcome. If you have not already, follow our podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and others. You miss Wex any day. You can download it, listen to it as well. We'll be right back. Dow Futures up 185. All right, welcome back. Let's turn now back to the markets. Dow futures indicating it could be another good day on the street of dreams. And bringing Keith Lerner, chief market strategist at Truist Advisory Services, somebody always with great market points and nuggets that I admit fully we have stolen occasionally for our RBI. Keith, welcome. Your latest note is called value pullback and opportunity for investors with a 12-month outlook. So you're not saying it's going to be a boom in the near term, but maybe you got to deal with some choppiness over the summer. Well, first, Brian, great to be with you as always. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think our perspective is like, let's look at it over the next six to 12 months, and we still think uh, the value trade is intact. Um, you know, as we think about this and take a step back, you know, growth has outperformed, as we discussed in the past, for about 14 years. And then last week, uh, we saw a little bit of a setback in the value trade, some of these sectors down 5 to 10%. And to us, just on a very short-term basis, things got a little bit oversold. I mean, overboard. There's a little bit too much confidence. It became a consensus call, and you had an uncomfortable gut check. But the primary drivers of the value trade, meaning above-trend economic growth this year and next, which should support the earnings growth from the more of these cyclical areas, uh, is still intact. And one thing I heard on your earlier segment was about energy. There's so much discussion about how energy is the best sector this year. But, Brian, what's less known is that Energy, even with these strong gains this year, have underperformed the S&P 500 by over 80% over the last three years. So we still think there's upside there as well. Yeah, and if you, if you chart oil versus oil stocks, there's still a huge gap. When oil usually is at 70 bucks, the stocks are somewhere else. Uh, they're well below that mark as well. So something's mispriced, either oil or oil and gas stocks. Another segment of the market which gets no attention and no love is real estate investment trust REITs. They've underperformed the market. They're probably underowned. You like them right now. How come with rates still where they are? 
Yeah, good question. We actually added REITs for the first time in our portfolios towards the end of May, and they've done pretty well so far. But you know, the first thing is they are very underloved. They've underperformed by a very wide margin of, over the last several years, uh, more than 20 percent the last two years. And when you bring up REITs, a lot of times people, the automatic assumption is these are a lot of the areas that are going to be hit or were hit by the pandemic and will continue to be hit. But, you know, the REIT index itself is a lot more um, now uh, the, the sector allocation has a lot more of the digital economy as far as data centers and towers. And then along with that, you also have some of these reopening plays. So it's a really nice play between growth and value in the reopening. And the relative price trends have just started to improve this year. And we still think there's upside because, again, the initial reaction from a lot of folks is, why would I want to invest in this area? And they don't understand how much this area has changed from an investment standpoint over the last 10 years. Yeah, it really has. And of course, most investors or some investors looking for distribution there as well. So on another hand, a lot of these REITs kick off a lot of, uh, you know, pass through income, which when rates are at one and a half percent, looking for income anywhere else as well. Big tech. Let's leave it there. Keith has been red, red hot. Uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, all of a sudden they're back in vogue again. Are you a believer or to your earlier point, is there better money to be made elsewhere, even though these names are still very loved? Yeah, we think they're middle of the pack as far as, the, as, far as an analogy that you used earlier. Um, we still think the leadership is in value and we would, we would stick with the value sectors for the next 12 months based on the economic outlook as far as above trend growth. Keith Lerner of Truist, some good calls there on REITs and energy. We're watching them both. Keith, thanks for coming on. Always appreciated. Look forward to your notes every day. Thank you, folks. Tune in tomorrow. Remember, our Friday exclusive insider buying segment, the names with the most buys by corporate insiders due to every Friday. We'll see you there for it. Dow Futures up a buck 78. Squawk Box is next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.